Our gospel reading this morning comes from Luke in the seventh chapter, verses 11 to 17. And this is a beautiful and shining example of Jesus taking compassion on someone with whom he comes into contact. Soon afterward, Jesus went into a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went out with him. And as he approached the gate of that town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was left a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her, and he said, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about Jesus spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now Joy and I are going to share a bit of our um, trip to Liberia. We left, and the, the image you're seeing now is Liberia. This is the kind of standard vegetation in that part of the country. It's uh, what we were surrounded with almost the entire time we were there. Um, we, we left here on a Saturday, arrived in Liberia in Monrovia, which is the capital city and where the airport is, uh, late on the night of Sunday. And uh, it, it was too late to, to travel out to Camp for Missions, so we, we went to a local place that is run by the Methodist Church called the Methodist Compound. There's someone who works for the Liberian Annual Conference, Methodist Church, whose job it is to be the liaison between the Methodist Church in Liberia and Umdim people, people like Joy and me, who come to be in mission and ministry to the people of Liberia. Part of her job is to meet us at the airport no matter what time we get in. So the plane getting in at 9.30 or so at night, which is late for them, uh, was just part of the job. But in, and her name is Dekunti. But in addition to Dekunti, the woman who is the principal of the school at Camp for Mission and the directress of the entire mission, whose name is Cecilia, traveled from Camp for Mission into Monrovia to be on hand to meet us personally and welcome us as I, and I just think that's a wonderful reflection of how, how welcoming and appreciative the people of Camp for Mission are to have us come. And you have to keep in mind, ours was the first team to go post Ebola. So it had been a long and difficult year and a half, almost two years, um, getting through the Ebola crisis, and people were very happy to see us. The first night and the last night we were in Liberia, we spent at the Methodist compound, and this image shows you the yard and one of the buildings there. There are several buildings. This is the inside. Um, it's, it really is a very upscale housing for Liberia. It's a cinder block building, everything is painted. There's tile on the floor, there's running water, not hot and cold, but running water in the sink and in the toilet and in the shower. 
Um, and they have like, they run a generator, so you can see there's a fan there that's plugged in. So Joy and I shared this room, and although we were protected by our bed nets, we were still able to enjoy a breeze from the fan to keep us cool, because it was hot. It was hot. And we traveled, there were seven members on our team. We, we had to rent a large van, or you might call it a small bus, to get us from place to place. Uh, so the seven of us and all of our luggage, which included one 50-pound bag of personal clothing, etc., for each person, and a second 50-pound bag of supplies and materials that we took to leave there. So 14 50-pound bags, the seven of us, the driver, Deconti, and anyone else who was going our way. Uh, transportation is a precious and expensive thing in Liberia, and so if, if a vehicle is going from point A to point B and there's anyone else around who needs to go to point B, they're going to pile in, and, and that happens all the time. So uh, we had a, a wonderful, friendly driver who, who got us more or less <laughs> without incident. Maybe there were a couple of little incidents, but we don't need to go into that. Um, and and uh, we, we got to Camp Formation on Monday afternoon, and it didn't take long before this became the standard scene. This is the, the front porch of the guest house where, where we stayed. Uh, filled with kids from the mission and the surrounding yard also uh, filled with a lot of kids who are very eager to be with us, to interact with us, to, to share with us, to, to learn with us. So it was Tuesday morning that we first had the opportunity to get into the classroom. And I knew going in that a big part of our work was going to be in the classroom, both with students and with teachers. Um, I was responsible for working with English, literature, writing, reading, spelling, vocabulary, fourth through ninth grade. And what you're seeing in front of you right now is their classroom schedule. It's the only one. There's a single copy and it's posted out in the hallway. And you can see it's a little confusing. So I went in on Tuesday morning, to be honest, with, uh, with some anxiety. Um, it's a brand new culture and a brand new environment. I wasn't really sure what to expect. And so I went in, I think my first class of the morning was a fifth grade reading class. And I sat down in the back and I waited about five minutes for class to start. I waited until 10 minutes for class to start. And at about 15 minutes, I asked the students, I said, where's the teacher? And they said, oh, he's out on bereavement leave. And I said, oh. So this was a, a new cultural learning moment for me. They take bereavement leave very seriously, as they should, but there aren't any substitute teachers. So when the teacher's out on bereavement leave, then the very fearful lady in the back of the classroom has to come up with a lesson right then and there, <laughs> which is what I did. So we ended up working on verbs that day, um, but it was a very quick process of just getting in and both feet and, um, and getting involved in the classroom with the students. I typically work with the students in the lower grades, in the first, second, and third grade, and this is a, a picture of one of those classrooms. Uh, actually, this is, this is one of the, the kindergarten classrooms. And uh, you'll see these, these desks are standard issue. It's a bench desk and two or three children, sometimes more, but we try to hope that there will be no more than two or three at a bench. Uh, you see on the back wall there are some numbers painted with, you know, then objects matching the, you know, in number, the, the digit that's painted there. That work was done by a, a group of Methodists who visited in an earlier year. I was not on that team. And the brown things that you see on the back wall are some corkboard that another of them team added so that teachers could um, 
you know, hang things for display or for educational purposes. Um, unfortunately, they, uh, they, they don't really use that much because they don't have, um, they don't have art class. They don't have, you know, things that, they're, that you would typically see hung on the classroom wall in an American school, they, they just don't have. So uh, those corkboards get used when we are there. Um, and here's, a, here's another classroom, and, and this classroom, you see at the back, in addition to the numbers that are painted on the wall, there's a, a piece of felt, a felt panel that I took, and, uh, and on it you'll see a felt alphabet that was cut out by some member of this congregation who helped with all that tedious work before I went. And uh, it's just another kind of learning tool for that teacher to have in her classroom. Um, one of the team members was very excited about doing some arts and craft projects with the kids in the lower grades. And she took, you know, those, those seven 50-pound bags that were filled with supplies and materials. A lot of that was art and craft materials taken by Kim uh, and, uh, you know, contributed by everybody, but really used by Kim and her in her work with the class, and this is one of these classes the kids on this day were doing thumbprint art where you just, you know, use the special ink, make your thumbprint, and then make something, some kind of picture out of that. This is a wonderful and exciting new experience for these kids. They just don't have that. They don't, you know, they don't have those kinds of inks. They don't have construction paper. They, they don't have the resources that our young children experience almost in, in the most casual way possible. Uh, so they were, they were quite excited about that, and because, because we were there and we knew what those cork boards were for, we hung these pictures up in the classroom, so the kids were pretty excited about that as well. This is a photograph of the seventh grade class, and uh, it's probably worth noting that uh, in any grade, the students stay in one room all day, and the teachers uh, in grades four through ninth just rotate to them. So, you know, our kids are accustomed to going into a room where if it's science class, there's a periodic table on the wall. Or if it's geography class, there's a map on the wall. Not so. The teacher is just coming into your same classroom to teach all the subjects. So at this moment in time, we're in grade seven, uh, grade seven literature, and Mr. Dean is standing over there on the side. He's the teacher. But I wanted to just say a word about how um, incredibly enthusiastic these young people are to learn. How many of you know what a gerund is in English? Gerund. You guys beat the last service, so congratulations. Um, but a gerund is a you know, slightly obscure grammatic term where a um, verb becomes a noun by adding ing, right? And the students are trying to understand gerunds. And to be completely frank, the teacher maybe was having a little trouble figuring out how to explain gerunds. Uh, because very often the teachers have perhaps what we would consider a high school level education, maybe a little bit more than that. But um, And so as, as we kind of teamed up and worked together and the had the opportunity to work out this concept and do some more experiential learning. My experience, very quickly, was that I had you know, eighth grade students, um, sometimes as old as 16, 17, 18 years old, I want you to visualize this, leaping out of their seats going, that's a gerund, that's a gerund. They're so excited <laughs> and thrilled when they achieve concept mastery. So these are students who are so hungry to learn, um, and that was consistently the experience throughout in addition to our work in the classrooms with students and teachers, we were asked in advance to, to provide some teacher training because the teachers, as Joy has said, are not by and large college educated. I, I don't think any of them has a four-year college degree um, and 
a handful of them have some college credits, and two of them actually, while we were there, completed a two-year associate's degree. Uh, so they, they know that they, uh, they have a lot to learn still, even though they're the teachers. Uh, a couple of them are not even high school graduates, so you know, they, they are eager for any opportunity to add to their content and to add to their um, meth teaching methods. The, the, the typical methodology in a, in a Liberian classroom, at least at Camp Permission, and, and actually at other schools I have visited, is the teacher writes the lesson on the board, the children all copied in their little copy books that they are required to have. That when everybody's done that, which takes anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half, when everybody's finished copying, the teacher takes the pointer and reads the lesson, pointing at each word as he or she reads it. The children repeat after the teacher. They do that several times, and then the teacher calls each student up. So, Linda, you come up and read, and Linda would come up and with the pointer point to each word as she goes, and the class would repeat. Everybody in the class goes through that. The result of that is that by the end of the class, many of the kids have memorized or nearly memorized that lesson. Not the same as understanding the lesson, but they have memorized the lesson. And the teachers know, in fact, in a meeting I was at a few years back, one of the teachers said in a faculty meeting, our students know the answer because they've memorized it, but they don't know the idea. And I thought that was a very good way of putting, you know, the dynamic that's going on there. Kids have mastered the words, but they don't get the concept or the idea. Uh, so we did this teacher training, emphasizing interactive teaching methods. Um, we, we gave a brief description of what that means to be interactive. We did some demonstrations, three or four demonstrations. And then we broke into small groups and asked the teachers to design for themselves an interactive teaching lesson that they would use for something they were actually going to be teaching in the coming week. And these teachers were very excited about this. And this, this picture you see here is um, one of those people standing in the group is the teacher for that lesson. And the others are students who were called up to participate in the interactive lesson. And that it, was, uh, it was a very exciting and in, in many ways liberating idea for them. Also intimidating because it's new and it's strange and, and it's not familiar and comfortable. Uh, so one of, the, one of the great blessings of this experience was that we did the training on a Saturday and we were there the entire subsequent week to be in the classroom again with those teachers kind of reinforcing, encouraging, helping them do more interactive teaching because, you know, you just, you can't, you can't learn a new skill if you only get to do it once. You, you need more practice and it takes more time. So one of the other really awesome things that happened while we were there was um, providing some actual musical resources for the students. Um, it's a very musical community, but without a lot of actual instruments or, or physical resources. There are a few uh, percussion instruments, but they're actually pretty few and far between. And to have what they refer to as little guitars, these are ukuleles, was a huge, huge blessing. So both the Brestville Community Chorus and also our <laughs> Chancel Choir here 
and our church um, supported our being able to take seven ukuleles over um, and every afternoon we would have a throng of kids on the porch learning how to play some songs on the ukulele um, and we're going to show you a little video of that in a second. So they were super excited about it, and we did, uh, as I said, leave all the ukuleles there so they can continue to make music even in our absence. And it was, honestly, it was pretty remarkable to me how quickly a lot of the students took to um, playing. So this is a short video that just went away. Uh, a short video, you'll recognize the song because we just sang it a few minutes ago. And one cool thing is that these young people are actually singing for the Bishop of the Liberian Annual Conference, who was so thrilled about our presence that he made a trip uh, up to Camford to greet us and was excited to see these young people playing ukuleles. In addition to the classroom work and the uh, teacher training and the ukuleles and the arts and crafts, uh, we instituted a study time on school nights uh, for two hours in the evening. Uh, before study time, school gets out at about 1.30 and then everybody eats, or at least the, the kids on the mission. The children who, who are boarding students who live in the dormitories are fed twice a day. They get breakfast. Uh, before school and then they get this afternoon meal that's at, a, at about two o'clock. The village children often walk into school and they, they many of them don't have breakfast beforehand. Uh, they spend the day at school when they walk home in the afternoon they will probably have a meal. Um, so, so we had, at, right after school, we had fun and games time. So from, from three to five, Kids could come, they could do puzzles, they could play games, they could color, we had a lot of coloring going on. And uh, you know, all with sort of resources and materials that are not part of their normal life. And then in the evening from seven until nine, we ran the generator so that the lights were on and students could come into the dining hall and, and do serious school work. So if they had trouble with spelling, trouble with the vocabulary, something they didn't understand in the social studies lesson, Math, any, anything, as long as it was real schoolwork. And so these pictures here show kids who are eager to, to get more opportunity to learn, who want to spend their evenings in the dining hall with us, improving their math skills, improving their English, understanding that, you know, there's one class was learning about the Liberian Constitution and they, you know, they just didn't get it. And so we were able to talk about 
you know, those kinds of concepts and what, what does that mean. So, and this was, this was really pretty wonderful to see, as Joy has already said, the eagerness with which these kids approach their educational opportunities. They know that education is important. They know that education is a source of power in their lives and they are all about getting as much as they can. That all being said, uh, we also have to recognize that they face a lot of limitations in their learning. So these next couple of photos are really just um, intended to sort of highlight some of the sort of systemic challenges that they face. Generally speaking, there are no textbooks. Maybe one or two or a handful once in a while, uh, but if there are textbooks, they really aren't allowed to take them home. They, they stay in the classroom. There are rarely enough for all the students, and they tend to be you know, a 10 or 12 year old textbook that's been donated from the United States. So they're not current by any means. The vast majority of their learning, as Janet said, is just done on the chalkboard. This hit home for me in a couple of ways. Um, this is just a photo of how a Liberian student learns about a river. Not by seeing a photograph of a river or having a textbook with lots of beautiful glossy pictures of a river or going and seeing, you know, on a field trip to actually see a river or boat on a river, but by having somebody sketch out um, a little unclearly what a river is in language, in words, and then draw kind of a rudimentary sketch on the board. I had another experience in a geography class where a student was trying to learn about the location of Liberia in West Africa from a paragraph that described Liberia as being, you know, north of this and south of that and east of this. And I was like, I can't even visualize that in my mind, trying to, you know, put those pieces together from words. And we're so accustomed to just being able to look and see on a map what things look like, but they very often don't have access, almost never have access to those kinds of resources. I want to give you a little backstory to this photo and the few that follow. In uh, 2014, when I was there, uh, I I decided with my Liberian family, and you know, and on some level, all of the people that came from Mission are my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I had developed a special relationship with some people, and and we decided that we would have a family birthday meal. You know, they they have birthdays, I have birthdays. But we're never together, or we're rarely together uh, on anyone's birthday. So we agreed that we would have a family birthday meal. And I, you know, I had envisioned this as a very American kind of thing. You know, we're all going to sit around the table. We're going to have a meal. We're going to have fun together. Maybe we'll play a game. You know, whatever. But you know, I wasn't at home in America. I was in Liberia, and things just sort of took on a life of their own. And well, can we invite so-and-so, can we invite this person? And it turned out that the birthday, family birthday meal turned out to be a community meal after church on Sunday. And everybody who was on the mission was invited and we ended up feeding about 100, maybe 120 people. Um, so, so that was a learning opportunity for me. So this time when we went, the team talked about having a community meal for everybody. And, and I, I, you know, it's important to me, I think that you try to understand that food security is a huge issue for families in Liberia. These, these kids are hungry almost all the time. And um, so we wanted, to have, we wanted to have a community meal that was not gonna be after church on Sunday because then most of the village children aren't gonna be there. We wanted a community meal that was really going to be available to all the students in the school as well as all the staff. So we did it on a Thursday after school and we told everybody every day for the week before, you know, on Thursday there's gonna be a meal, everybody's invited, bring a bowl and be ready. And, and 
I'll tell you. So, so we bought the chicken, and um, the team spent many, many hours picking chicken because we, you know, we had to, after we cooked it, we had to get the meat off the bone so that it could go into the big uh, community pot. I have to interject a word. Liberian chickens, they are not like American chickens. The meat does not just fall nicely off the, off the bones with a little bit of effort. It is like tearing shoe leather off of a, I don't even know what. It is a ton of work. <laughs> they are tough little chickens. So we spent a lot of time <laughs> Tough and lean. It takes a lot of chickens to get the, the amount of meat that we, we put into this. But the, the team pulled together, literally and figuratively, and, and we got all the chi chicken off. And uh, then the cooking had to happen. Cooking is an outdoor affair in Liberia. So we had coal pots, which is just a little, like one, one burner coal, coal vessel on which a large pot can sit. And uh, you know, had this is success, my Liberian daughter, success, who was the chair of the cooking committee. And then other people helped as well. And so all this cooking is happening outside. And uh, you know, these big plastic tubs were actually used as serving dishes because we, we, we fed about 250 people. Um, so the cooking was done when we carried all the food down to the dining hall. Here are kids lined up outside waiting for the doors to open for this meal. And I want to tell you, school attendance on Thursday, 100%. <laughs> school attendance on Friday, not so much. And, uh, you know, it was organized. We just had everybody line up. They came in one class at a time, starting with the youngest up to the oldest. Everybody got, you know, a bowl of rice. Everybody got a, a scoop or two of the chicken mixture. And everybody got a small piece of cornbread. So that was, that was the meal, and, and it, was, uh, it was a good meal. We included this photo to, I think, show a couple of things. They, they love to play football. They're awesome uh, football soccer players. Um, but if you take a close look at this picture, um, if you look at the second gentleman in, kind of in the back left there, he is wearing a pair of hand-me-down men's loafers, it, uh, are the shoes on his feet. And then number eight, the next guy there in the middle, is actually running barefoot. At least one of the other young men in this photograph is wearing a pair of shoes that he just borrowed from someone on our team so that he could play soccer. Uh, the uniforms are owned by the school, and they play with great gusto and a tremendous amount of energy, but um, even having one soccer ball to, to pull out for the game is a big deal, and certainly having shoes is often out of reach for most of the students. So again, just a, an example of limited resources there. This is a photo of one of the villages that surrounds the mission, and children from the villages walk into school every day. The, the walk might be I would say the nearest village is probably 20, 20 minute walk. Uh, up to, there are, there are kids who walk more than an hour, maybe as much as an hour and a half to get to school. And uh, this particular village is the village of Mofle. And I, I tell you that name and, and I want you to link in your mind that a few years ago, the youth of our congregation raised money to send to Liberia to, for, to pay for a well to be installed in one of the villages around Kemper Mission. This is the village. Mofle has the UMC, you know, Brexville UMC youth well installed, and, and they are still enjoying clean, you know, underground water instead of the dirty surface water, uh, thanks to the youth of this congregation who raised money and sent it over. Um, this is a this is a very typical village scene, and um, 
some of the team members took clothing to be given out to, to villages. So on this particular hike, we walked to two different villages and distributed some clothing. And these young children are modeling the new dresses they got uh, from, from the handouts, and they were you know, quite happy to have them. This is a typical village home, and you, you see that it actually consists of two structures. There's on the left the, the house itself, which is really the sleeping area, and then on the right, that lower structure that has no walls is the kitchen. The kitchen is an outdoor thing in, Li in Liberia and in most of West Africa. And if you look closely, it might be a little hard to see from, from where you are, but you can kind of see that there's a trench dug around the kitchen. Um, that's because there's a dry season and a rainy season, but in the rainy season, we still need to cook that rice and do other things in the kitchen, and so the trench diverts the water so that the kitchen floor stays, because it's covered by that roof, the kitchen floor itself stays dry enough for people to go out and, and use the kitchen, and of course, hang out in the kitchen. Same thing is true in Liberia as we find in American homes. Most of the activity happens in the kitchen. You know, people hang out in the kitchen, people visit in the kitchen, people talk while they're cooking in the kitchen, etc. So that's your typical Liberian village home. Um, we included this photograph because it shows something that is typical and consistent as you're, as you're traveling around Liberia, and that is that everyone you meet is unbelievably welcoming and generous and hospitable. Um, everywhere that we went, if there wasn't bench seating for everyone, they would run in and pull chairs out so that we could all have a place to sit and be community together and talk and, and, um, and be comfortable. So the hospitality is overwhelming. And, I know throughout our trip, uh, the students often would bring us a cucumber or bring us a pineapple, or we even got a live chicken during the course of the trip. So that was <laughs> one of the students brought one of our team members a chicken. Um, Which chicken was not live by the next it day. It was not served. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> that was the whole idea. They bring you food. That's, that's a valuable gift. So the, just the hospitality and generosity. And then here, uh, this is a gentleman actually up in one of the palm trees harvesting palm nuts for making palm oil and other food products. Um, but I think it's important to know that the individuals uh, in Liberia, they're working very hard to make a living. It's a very undeveloped economy. Uh, there are not a lot of jobs. I discovered in my research this week that Liberia has the second highest unemployment rate in the world at 85%. And it isn't because people don't want to work. They work very hard every day. Um, but if this is the way that you're gonna access a resource and, and have that to sell or to share with your family, that's what you're gonna do. Uh, here, a man named James makes these beautiful wood carvings and Janet brought uh, a few and put them on the altar, so we invite you to come up and take a closer look at them later. But that's how James is striving to make a living for his family is by learning a craft and, um, and sharing it either with American visitors or with folks in country. I hope most of you will remember that a few years ago, this congregation decided to raise money to help build additional housing at Camp Permission. Uh, we made that commitment and we sent, we sent all the money that we promised to send, and they have been busy building the home, which is a three-bedroom home. Uh, these pictures show students helping move the building materials to the work site. A load of sand might be delivered and a truck comes in and it goes to a certain point and dumps it on the mission. The, those cinder blocks that you saw are, are made on the mission with a mold. So they make, you know, they mix the, the concrete mix and the sand and the water on the site. They fill a mold, 
dump it out and leave it wherever they're going to have them dry. And then when it's time to actually do the building, all those blocks have to be moved to the actual construction site. So the principal might come in and say, okay, the workers need uh, more sand or the workers need more blocks. So after school, everybody's going to spend an hour moving stuff. And the students just get out there and, and do the moving. Even very young children are actively participating in this. And we have a, a short video um, to share with you of some of, some of that student participation. Sorry about that, but we have a little equipment failure here this morning. And I'm sorry you're gonna miss it because these kids, they're just going back and forth, you know, from the, the material site to the work site. And, and whenever there's a, a, a group of them, they're singing as they go. And somebody's got an empty water bottle that she's using as a little percussion instrument just to keep the rhythm going and, and while they're walking. This is the house the staff housing that, that Brexville Congregation is, is paying for uh, as it stands now. And Joy and I visited it and got the tour. It's a three-bedroom home. Um, it is not quite complete. Uh, the construction was interrupted by the Ebola crisis. And, uh, you know, as is common in American projects, there have been a, a few cost overruns. Um, and, and I'm going to be getting back to you later on a different occasion about what, what maybe we can do to help get that building finished so that it can be put to, to the full use that we intend for it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's coming along. And, and I want you to know that the people of Kemper Mission are, are also trying to raise money that they need to help finish this house. Um, so, as I said, more on that later. Now, talking about Camp for Mission would not be complete without talking about worship at Camp for Mission, uh, where uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm in the service, uh, there's a lot of music in the service, and there's a lot of energy. Uh, in, in each Liberian congregation, there are older women who are known as deaconesses, and the deaconesses always wear white. They sit together, they sit near the front of the church, and one day a week at Camper, it's on Fridays, they get together and have a, and have a prayer vigil, which could be all day or, or several hours through the day. And they, they meet in this sanctuary and, and pray for their families, pray for the mission, pray for the community, pray for their nation and the world, and, they, and that is their role. And we were hoping we could share a video of worship the woman in the green dress in the center of that photo is Success, who is also kind of the music director of that congregation. Are we going to get there?
So we just wanted to close by kind of sharing um, some of the personal connections that Janet and I have in Liberia. This is my Liberian son, John. He's 19 years old and an 11th grader at a Methodist high school called Brumskin in the town of Buchanan. And uh, I've been in touch with John for about five years, and this was the first opportunity that I actually had to meet him in person. So uh, that was pretty incredible for me. And then this is a picture of uh, me with John and his brother Peter in front of their home in Buchanan. So uh, that's my Liberian family. And this is my Liberian family, success in the green dress. And uh, to, her, to her right, your left, in the striped shirt is her son, Aloysius who is 23 and a graduating senior this year and uh, hoping to, you know, hoping to find a way to make a living because as Joy has said, it's a very informal economy and, and it's, you can't just walk out and get a job, it's tough. Uh, on, on, the, on the right in the orange dress is Success's daughter, Sandra, and then the little girl in Success's arm is her daughter, um, little Janet. And the, the children, the boys kneeling in the front are Success's nephews who, uh, who live with her and she cares for as, as her own. And this is the other part of my Liberian family. This is Coretta, who I met at when she was a student at Camp for Mission. The Camp for School only goes up to ninth grade, so if kids want to finish high school, they have to go somewhere else. And Coretta has family in Monrovia, so she went there and gra has graduated from high school. She is 18. And, um, and this is her little girl, Janet. And um, she is, Coretta is now teaching, teaching a first grade class in a local Baptist school near her home, but is hoping to go on to college and she would like to develop a career as a journalist. And so um, she and I will continue in a family relationship for as long as I am able.